brought to you by Guatney Chevrolet. At the Gregory Street exit in Jacksonville, this is Guatney Unplugged with Scott Romine. Hey, Scott Romine here. And as you know, the Jaws film from back in the 70s is probably the greatest movie ever made. And uh, in fact, it was in theaters again this summer in uh, IMAX and also 3D. And excited to talk with Marty Milner. He was the construction foreman on the film Jaws back in 1974. Worked on building the, the boat, the Orca 1 and 2 and Quint Shack and lots of other iconic images from the Jaws film. How are you, Marty? Marty? I'm fine. How about you, Scott? How's I, it going? I am good. I'm just, I, I'm always so excited to talk about Jaws. It is the movie that will never go away. Did you grow up there around Martha's Vineyard or something? That, how you would get well, involved? Well, I, um, I, uh, I w I'm from Massachusetts and I lived on the, on the Cape for many, many summers as a kid. And then after I graduated from college, I uh, moved to Martha's Vineyard and I lived there for 20 years, moved there in the early 70s and I lived there for 20 years. And then in 74, uh, that's when they filmed the movie. Is it true, as they say in the movie, if you're not born on the island, you're not an islander. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still not an islander. They call everybody who wasn't born there a wash a wash ashore. Ah, and uh, I guess there's still basically. A, are there a lot of people still live there that were involved in the movie at all? Uh, there's quite a few actually. Um, uh, uh, and they're all um, had different roles in the movie. It was a kind of a hodgepodge of an event, uh, I can basically run you through the uh, kind of the calendar um, in 1974. Oh, sure. Uh, because it's a, sm it's a small island, there's, at that time, there was probably eight to 12,000 people there year round. Now in the summer, that's much higher. And in sure. the winter, it's much lower. It's also one of the poorest counties in Massachusetts because it's really only open for 90 days of the year. But um, back then it was anyway. So everyone basically uh, had a, um, well, like once a week on Thursday nights, everybody would get together for a drink at the local uh, bar. And I happened to be there one night with a friend of mine, Bob Imany, and I had, he and I had, were, had just finished framing his house. Um, and I had been a carpenter for four or five years after I graduated from college. So and I had a bunch of tools back then. Um, there was the whole earth catalog and, uh, there's a back to the land movement. And basically what I wanted to do is I wanted to basically make things with my hands and, and basically get into like the real, uh, mechanics of how the world operates from the, from the ground up. So that's, and I was a young man. Uh, so in 1974, I was 26 years old approximately the same age as Steven Spielberg. So I was at the bar and two guys walked up to me and Bob and um, said, you know, hey, I'm looking for a carpenter, you know, uh, to run a crew. We're going to make a movie here this year. And I need somebody to like who knows the local carpenters and stuff who can run a crew for me. And would you be interested in that? So we got talking and I said, well, what exactly are you looking for? And they said, we need somebody who can make a commitment and we don't want somebody leaving once you start yeah. because we're going to need somebody who can hold everything together. So I said, well, I could do that for you. And then we talked a little bit about um, 
prefabrication, and I had just learned a lot about prefabrication from what we call local island geniuses. There are a lot of very smart, um, very well-credentialed people who live on Martha's Vineyard. And one gentleman's name was Milton Wind, uh, and Milton Wind knew a lot about prefabrication and construction of homes and stuff like that. So I spent quite a bit of time talking to Milton about prefabrication because that could be a thing on an island where you would prefabricate the home off island and then bring it to the island and assemble it. That never really developed as a product, but you know, that's basically sure. one of the things that goes on in the winter. So um, we kind of shook hands on it. And then a month or two later, they gave me a call and I went down to the boathouse in Egertown and we had a set of blueprints uh, that was more or less married to the storyboard but the storyboard wasn't really fleshed out because as any Jaws fan knows, there wasn't really a script. And because it was the first time a movie had ever been shot on the ocean, um, there were a lot of non-cooperating features <laughs> I involved in shooting outside in the, in the, in the late spring, uh, early summer on Martha's Vineyard with the finicky New England weather. So, Things were constantly changing. And uh, the two guys that I worked for were in the organizational chart of the movie. Uh, there's like basically anywhere from nine to 15 departments. And I was in uh, in the construction area. I was actually the foreman of uh, set construction for local hires. We had at one point, I think, 40 or 50 people who were local hires working on the sets because they started filming in early June. And in early June in New England, the water is damn cold. It ah, is really cold. Sure. So uh, we had to have the beach set all set, ready to go. That was like, I think there was like um, eight cabanas, and I had two or three in the hole in case any of them got damaged. Uh, we had the boardwalks, we had the hot dog stand, we had the gazebo. Uh, there was uh, a it's, few other uh, uh, beach buildings. It's funny you say so, that because I think everyone that loves the movie assumed that those were things that were just naturally on that beach. No, they were not. And they were all put together in sections. They were built in Norton and Esterbrook's boatyard, which is adjacent. It's a gigantic building that they use to build boats in. And we, we got the first orca and we cast a mold of it of fire in fiberglass, peeled the fiber. We painted the hull with oil, uh, uh, laid the fiberglass on it, let it set up, then peeled it off and then took that inside the boathouse and then doing an exact duplication of the boat that was still in the side yard. We basically created a duplicate of that boat inside the boathouse, except it had no bottom. So it, it couldn't well, it float. A, it, it, there's no way it was, it was a, a, a shell that uh, there was like a wooden interior that matched it more or less, but there was no bottom on it. And uh, we built a series of uh, metal struts uh, that had uh, 55 gallon drums that could be tilted to dump out the air. So it could be partially sunk or it could be upright or, could lean left, lean right, and um, that uh, was made by a, an art, a local uh, blacksmith named Jim Blaine, who also built the shark cage. 
Um, ah. And there was, at uh, uh, each step along the way, when we were doing the construction, different island specialists would be called to do different things. It's like uh, Travis Tuck made a copper shark a weather vane for um, Quint's house that was built up in Menemsha. Uh Martha's Vineyard is 100 square miles. Uh, it's basically, I think, I think 14 miles on one edge. It's triangular shaped. And we shot in um, five different towns of the six on the wow. island. Uh, different sets were set up. So they basically, uh, there was a lot of craziness <laughs> uh, because the um, they were working on a script, they were fighting the weather, they were fighting the local insanity of trying to do something in a summer community with all the politics that were involved, plus dealing with the Hollywood union issues and all the layers of people that kind of drag around behind a movie. Um, and a shark and that, that didn't work too good. We had three sharks that didn't work too good. <laughs> so um, they started shooting, and um, I just um, I spent many, many days. Um, I was working from like seven o'clock in the morning till sometimes uh, two or three o'clock, two or three o'clock the following morning. Oh my goodness! Basically, around the clock. I went thirty-two days without a day off. The shark cage was built locally. Does that still exist? Um, that's a, a like everything else in the movie. That's a controversial subject. Really, one person cl claims to actually have it, um, and I looked at pictures of it, and it looks similar, very very similar to the one that I knew because I basically had to store the thing and drag it around. After Jim Blaine built it, it was like uh, flat stacked; it wasn't assembled. And we just like had to keep moving it around the boathouse because it kept getting in the way. And eventually we sent it out to sea. So um, it may or may not actually exist. Nobody is really sure on that. Um, and that's true with a lot of the other artifacts. I've heard uh, like Quint's chair still exists maybe or the harpoon gun, you know. The harpoon gun definitely exists. The the chair definitely exists somewhere. Those are expensive items. They're not going to ever disappear. Ah. Uh, there were many. There were many other things. A lot of the signs that were made. It's like the uh, Amity National Bank sign. Uh, we made like uh, uh, at least five of those, and those were made out of masonite. You see, most of what we made. The the beach scene um, that was all made at, uh, and uh, knocked down and, and flat stack and then dragged out to the beach and assembled out there. We we kept the people who were local hires working for at least a month and a half, two months until that beach scene was completed. Then the movie changed gears, and at that point, they sort of had the shark working. But the problem was the shark is an is an articulated steel uh, contraption that was run by pneumatics and mm -hmm. I believe hydraulics as well, uh, and that's layered with a uh, probably a four inch um, layer of call it blubber that was actually poly uh, high density polyurethane foam. Then that was covered with a uh, wow. four way. Workstop nylon, 
and then that was glued onto the the uh, call it blubber uh, with um, flexible epoxy. So we had these sharks that had been all made from the same mold, except one side, the left side was cut out, the other side, the right side was cut out, the other side, the bottom was cut out, so that you could have access to it, so you could shoot one side or the other, but not from the same fish. Right, right. So they had these things out at the sea, and all these long trailing tubes going to what they called uh, the garage sale barge, where they had all the hydraulic controls and they would use that plus a tugboat to try to get the action. Now, what happened is that's all good on paper. Yeah, right. But what happened, what happens is the action of the hydraulic and the pneumatic rams was, didn't have stops or they chattered when that happened, it tore the flesh. Ah. So, they were trying to get the shark to work and they kept tearing like the smile on the shark was like a foot or two wider on both sides because they had ripped the, the skin. So they dragged the shark back to the boathouse and they asked me, you know, can you work on the shark and just get it fixed until, you know, we'll come and get it, you know, early tomorrow morning. So many, many nights I was working on one version of the shark gluing the dang thing back together again. Uh, and Ward, Ward Welton, was like my main supervisor, really a wonderful gentleman, knew an enormous amount and just got his job done. He knew how to paint. He knew the carpentry. He knew uh, the special effects guys. He knew how to work with them all. And uh, Ward and I got to be very good friends, uh, and he taught me a lot. So he showed me how to repair the shark, and basically you you cut away anything that's jagged, and then you clean it all off with uh, rubbing alcohol, and then you dry it, and then you paint it with the uh, um, a flexible epoxy, then you get uh, four-way ripstock nylon dipped in epoxy and put that on the outside, and you... Um, there's a uh, a tool called a hog ring plier. Yeah, which has yeah, a like for a, seats a, a and stuff. Four. Yeah, and basically, uh, we use that as surgical staples to to close ah, the wound in the shark. Okay, and and then I uh, after the epoxy set up, then I would take a pair of uh, diagonal cutters, cut the hog ring ring out, and then I would smooth it uh, with a high speed air air. Um, grinder uh so it was really smooth and then paint it and then ward would come and do the final painting on it and then we would double double check to make sure all the little dots on the shark's skin were in exactly the same place and that continuity that attention to continuity ward was kind of crazy about that because when it shows up in the movie it makes everyone looks bad and it suspends the willing disbelief right, that people right. have in order to like enjoy the movie so I did a lot of I painted seagull shit on both boats. I painted it on Quint's house. I I did a lot of like everything had to look old, and anything that was a duplicate had to look exactly the same as every other one. So one of the things I would do was go to daily rushes and see the movie being made, but I wasn't really even looking at the movie. I was looking at my work to make sure that everything was consistent. Because that was really important oh, for sure. our, bran our branch of the organizational chart. 
everybody else had their own stuff to go through. And there was a lot of chaos. And there were a lot of people who should not have even been there who were basically undermining the movie. There were people who were supposed to be working that refused to work. It's like working in the shark. It was disgusting. It was smelly. It was moldy. Uh, They had never planned on having that shark in the ocean for weeks and weeks and weeks. It had absorbed a lot of water and it absorbed microorganisms. It was probably a gigantic health hazard. And I was inside this thing crawling (laughs) around because the guys in the FX union refused to do it. They showed up, they were collecting a check, but they wouldn't do certain things because it just was too disgusting. It was probably as dangerous as a real great white. (laughs) (laughs) Well, somebody had to do it and that, that somebody ended up being me. You'll see movies and you'll say sometimes, why did they make that movie? It was terrible. <laughs> yeah. You know, or, geez, this is a B, this isn't a B movie. This is probably a C or a D movie. Yeah. Like the, the do, last Halloween is uh, definitely qualifies. Yeah, what they do <laughs> is they keep, they either test a new technology or they keep their crew working. That's a crew that's together because those people in between movies, they go and do other things. So sometimes they'll like uh, Spielberg had done Duel, then he did Sugarland Express, and they went from Sugarland Express right to Jaws. So essentially, Ward and a handful of other people uh, knew each other, and then there were all these other hangers on sure. that were brought in for like technical reasons or business reasons or union reasons or whatever. And then there's all the local hire misfits like me and many of the other people we had working, but. I, because I had a lot of tools and because I would work on limited amounts of hours, I was also extremely creative and I could get a lot of things done and the things that I did worked. So Ward and I got together really well and, and it really worked as a partnership to get our end done. Now, whatever else was going on in that movie, it was a lot of chaos, a lot of stress uh, there were a lot of financial things going on. The auditor, Nick Charlanzio, was pulling his hair out to try to keep control of the money. And there was a lot of money leaking around. And the producers, Anik and Brown, were really concerned. The budget went from three to six million dollars, then to nine million dollars, and then up to eleven million dollars in post-production. Ugh. And it over it overran the shooting budget by a couple of months. And everybody thought, Stephen thought he was going to get fired every damn day. (laughs) We kept laying people off, and then I'd call back certain ones to get certain things done. I had a different crew building um, Quince Shack up in Menemsha. I think you built the famous Amity billboard that, of course, the kids spray paint the fin on and the whole scene did you did you build it to a quality that you could have left it there all these years or or what happened to it? nothing (laughs) nothing that we built could be used longer than a month or two i got you and we had many many duplicates and ward kept saying this isn't going to last forever don't waste the money it just has to look good for a couple of seconds it has to look right and it doesn't have to be good this is not going to be around in a month. All this is going to the dump when we're done. So <laughs> we built the billboard uh, in two sections. If you look at that billboard, you can see there's a seam. Now, there's a bunch of seams and all the stuff we did. Sure. Uh, 
there's a gap in the gazebo roof and the beach scene. Uh, you can see that the roof on the hot dog stand doesn't have angled rakes. It's got a square drop-on box top almost on it. So to a carpenter, that stuff stands out. To the viewing public, it doesn't matter. They'll never notice it. It's There's nothing fancy about it. And then they glued this thing onto it. Now, the picture. And right. then they did the the art director arranged to have that uh, the, the graffiti put on it. And then uh, Ward suggested that they spray the whole thing with um, white carpenter's glue so that if it, if it rained or if it got windy or there was some kind of a problem, they could get a, oh, as much as a week out of it if they did this. So he sprayed the whole thing with white carpenter's glue. What happened was is the white glue stayed white as it was drying and they were they were coming to shoot. And uh, the art director said, oh, my God, we're going to because it was seventy thousand dollars a day to shoot. <laughs> and and Joe, Joe Wells said it's white. It's it's like it's not drying. And Ward said it'll be it'll be dry by the time you're ready to shoot. And it was now on Martha's Vineyard. They didn't like the movie. Really? And there are a lot of professional there are a lot of professional New York people there and actors and famous people. And they considered it an intrusion on their world and an interruption to their lives. Really? I would think the, it would have uh, been embraced, but you know, I get maybe not. They don't have McDonald's on Martha's Vineyard. There are no franchises on Martha's Vineyard. They aren't interested in some crappy movie that some unknown director is going to make and turning it into a tourist, a tourist thing. Sure. They have, they have tours of Martha's Vineyard and they have Jaws tours, but they never really kept anything from the movie that I'm aware of. I gotcha. You mentioned earlier about making a replica, a fiberglass replica of the Orca, the, the boat that Quint, you know, is the captain of, would you kind of talk about, obviously, the one you made is the one we're seeing when it is sinking at the end, correct? Yes, and I made uh, six uh, balsa wood sterns that were breakaway. That means you can plug it in and plug it out. Uh, three of them were made out of balsa wood. Three of them were made out of sugar pine. I also made six cabin sidewalls where the shark comes through the sidewall, six out of balsa wood six out of sugar pine for different kinds of shot effects. The same thing is true with the teeth. I was working with Roy Arbogast, who basically was the king of special effects, who did most of the um, uh, material design on the shark, and he was the one that did the shark teeth. And I was molding shark teeth all the time. We were giving them away to people for toys and you know sure collectibles yeah uh, and there, there there were some that were hard and there were some that were soft when you've got a person in the jaws it has to be soft when you're chewing on wood it has to be hard <laughs> you can never allow the camera to see a tooth bend <laughs> that's true you can't do that <laughs> those things would be pretty valuable but, today I'm sure they are and I wish I'd held on to some but I never did all the ones that I had I gave away because I'm uh, I have a lot of contact with kids, the children of people your age who are Jaws buffs. And uh, over the years, I've given that all virtually everything that I had away 
Because, you know, it's important for kids to have uh, their little box of treasures. Oh, sure. <laughs> you know, Marty, when you're filming something like the orca is sinking at the end of Jaws, obviously they want you to have the impression they're in the middle of the ocean. Are you really only a few feet off of shore? Are you like in a swimming area or, or fairly close That's, to they shore? Were, they, were, they were very close and they were actually in a shallow bay. So that, that boat couldn't have sank any much farther than it already was. It yeah, was I mean, a very shallow bed. What, 10 feet but, deep but or something? Have, yeah, probably a little bit less than that. And the, the thing <laughs> is, it's like, in order, if that boat had sunk, they would have had to get, I believe the tug's name was Whitefoot, they'd have to get the crane on the Whitefoot and lift the thing back out again and then make it seaworthy. The actual boat itself was not seaworthy. And the duplicate we made was a dangerous unseaworthy vessel it was not even a vessel it was a contraption <laughs> i'd always heard so, the original ended up at universal back in the little pond and spielberg it, would... it did it, it it did and then it rotted it never made it to the pond it, it they basically dragged it back there i think they made a reproduction of it and it rotted on the back lot <laughs> now that that's um in terms of not knowing what you had or what you were even going to make. Uh, if you can imagine how desperate people who were professional or people who had money or people who were responsible for watching money, can you imagine spending six months in complete embedded chaos and not having any idea if you even had a story yeah. let alone a movie. And the Verna Fields came in at the end, who was the editor. Yep. Now, her son, Rick, there's a picture of me with Rick in the editing room because I was looking at the Daily Rushes to see uh, for continuity. She looked at what she had, and she, she talked to her son, and she went and got like a handful of shots to complete a story that she thought might be able to work. And then they left with all of that. I actually load myself personally. I loaded the cans of that movie into the truck as it was leaving. Wow. And uh, it was at that point, nobody knew if they had anything. They didn't know, oh my God, this might not be any good. It's not, this might not be any good. It's like, do we even have a movie? <laughs> is this, is this, is this like, what did we just do? And there are all these people pulling their hair out, stepping on each other's toes, at each other's throats for six months, arguing from the different department heads about what had to happen within the context of being on Martha's Vineyard. It was just um uh, a hellish experience for a great many people. And a number of people got fired on the spot for different snafus. At one point, somebody on the island had cornered all of the lead on the island and rent rented it to them to use this ballast in both of the boats. And then the movie went on forever and they ended up making a fortune on rented lead. I Good mean, grief. that's a story. That's a story that gives you an idea of, the different little corners of insanity and to like work off the blueprints, stay ahead of authorization. Cause I had to keep people working. And if they wanted something ready to be shot, 
I actually was supposed to be to get authorization to spend the money and to have the materials to do that. But Ward and I totally skipped that process. And we went ahead and I went ahead and made stuff that we weren't authorized to do. And several times they came and they said, we need this from the beach scene tomorrow. We we don't have anything else to shoot. Can you make this tonight? And I said, it's already made. I can deliver it at six o'clock tomorrow morning. You can shoot at eight. Hey, Marty, I've always heard that Quince Shack was like something totally against code and was basically kind of like built illegally or torn down before you would get in trouble. Was there no permit at all? There was a special permit, uh, and basically there were no codes. It was a balloon frame structure that was slapdash. And if we hadn't taken it down, it probably would have fallen down. <laughs> uh, it was it was strong enough to support what had to happen, but there was a real tight lid on materials. And um, the people who put it together, Bobby did a good job. During the whole movie, we used an incredible amount of plywood um, to make plywood gussets, to stiffen corners, and to create winds and to eliminate wind sway. So we used a lot of plywood gussets on a great many things because there's no way we would have been allowed to spend the money to make a house. It's just, it's just, that's not going to happen. You could see through the walls at Quinn's house. Well, there's also like more buildings along the water there. Did you build more structures than one? No, we, we built the only the one, the rest are all, what's called Menemsha fishing shacks. Some of those go back to the 20s, the 30s, the 40s. Uh, That's a fishing village, and that's a working fishing village. There are commercial fishermen there who go for, like, swordfish and um, uh, shark and a lot of other stuff. So, like, that's a commercial fishing village, um, and it's still a commercial fishing village. That's one of the livelihoods on the island. That's the only one of the few year-round cash flows that keeps the island afloat so it's all it's all an interesting thing one of the more interesting people by the way andras as you may or may not remember but lee fierro who was a dear friend of mine um lee fierro played mrs kentner oh yes and she she is uh she passed away during covid a few years ago uh she was in in her 90s i'm still good friends with her family and with her son ethan uh, um, and the, and I was also friends with her husband at the time, but basically Lee had a background in early television and also stage. And she was working at Island theater workshop and she interviewed for the part with Sherry Rhodes. And I knew Sherry, she was a sweetheart, really a good person. And she did a good job on casting that movie, but the Island people that she cast, she cast a lot of people in different oddball roles. Nobody knew what they had with Lee Fierro because Lee Fierro had a Screen Actors Guild card and she was an actual actor and she got hired for the job and Spielberg, uh, there was a, they wanted her to swear. She refused to swear. Uh, so she walked away from the park. So they called her back and they said, we spoke to the producers, Zanuck and Brown, and they basically said, she's probably right. She shouldn't swear. So the, she, they asked if she would do the job. So she did the job. 
and she did not pull her punches. She slapped um, <laughs> uh, Roy Scheider, uh, um, Roy Scheider across the face like 17, 20 times. Once she hit him so hard, she knocked his glasses off. Oh, wow. And that was uh, such a powerful scene. It really um, there's a couple of scenes in the movie that glued it together and that. Uh, making the death of that little boy real yes. was a supreme a supreme job of acting, and most people never got the dynamic of like her being an older woman who had a younger son, right? And then I believe that's her father with her at the thing. But like that played to a lot of parents who were just like you know thinking twice about taking their kids to the beach. <laughs> Didn't, didn't fans like beg her to slap them for years? Yes, yes, and eventually <laughs> she stopped. She stopped doing. She was a very gentle person. She was a wonderful, real wonderful lady. A dear friend of mine. Uh, my my birthday is in February. Her de- birthday is the day before my birthday. Ah. So we celebrated birthday together for years because I was friends with her husband for you know a long time, well over ten years. So it's like. It's like Lee was a sweet person and a highly talented. She was really, she had theater in her veins and she really put a lot into that. And I think it's one of the scenes that really made the movie. Um, And that's the other part of uh, everybody. And the reason we're even talking now is because everybody has a feeling about Jaws. Everybody, Jaws means something different to everyone. And when people, I have people who follow me on Facebook for Lord only knows what reason from all over the world. I got people from like, uh, England and Japan and all, all sorts of other places. And a lot of little kids follow me as well because, because through their parents page, because they had questions and they wanted somebody to answer them. Most of the people from Hollywood are not going to pay any attention to fans, but I've never refused to draw a fan of anything that they asked as long as so it was great. a reasonable thing. Hey, so, Marty, thing, is one of the yeah. little kid? I've heard one of the little kids that pulls the prank is now your police chief. Yes, he was the police chief in Agartown. Uh, he was just made police chief, I think, last year or the year before. <laughs> That's now, great. It's, it's funny. It's funny. Um, uh, I'm not an Islander and I don't live on the Island. Now I live in, in, in Florida, but the thing that's interesting is, um, since I lived on the Island in all six Island towns, I know literally hundreds of people who live on Martha's Vineyard and I'm very close to that community and always will be. And that's kind of like the way it works. You're either in that fold or you're not. And if you're not, you're never going to understand how that community works. What I think Jaws is about, it's about two things. Number one, it's about doing your job. And if you're going to start a project, you have to have the right people involved Mm -hmm. in order to make sure that the project is successful. Because at any point, that could have turned into a complete failure. And it it really burned Steven Spielberg so that he became so strong after that And I think one of the things he learned was get the right people and build a solid team and execute my vision or get out of my way. (laughs) 
And I'm fairly fairly certain he never wanted to be put where he was at the mercy of other people ever again. And that's what, where he was. Now the story of Jaws is a different thing. If you look at the actual story of Jaws, Mm -hmm. there's three people. There's a guy who's intelligent, who knows everything, but who does nothing. And when the chips are down, he swims away. That's Hooper. Yeah. You got Quint, who's headstrong, has emotional problems, and is basically uh, a loose cannon, and he's dangerous to himself and others. And then you got the well-meaning Brody, who basically can't swim and hates the water, and he basically has to step up and get the job done, or he's going to die. Mm-hmm. And within all that, you've got the information And this is why kids like dinosaurs. At different points in your life, Scott, you're going to be in a situation where you can be eaten alive. But basically what it comes down to is, is the story of Jaws is if you're being eaten alive, are you going to be Quint? Are you going to be Hooper? Or are you going to be Brody? And If you think you're going to get through life without having several circumstances where you're not actually threatened with being eaten alive, and by that, I literally mean your life is going to end as you know it. It may be a metaphor, but essentially you may actually be in a situation where your your life can end from a situation. And that does happen. I mean, I'm 75 years old, and I can tell you at different points – the jaws were open and it wasn't looking good. <laughs> I have, and I've, that's, you, and, you're and that, so right. That is why jaws is still watched and people are still trying to figure it out. They're afraid to actually look at that idea that they could be eaten alive and they need information on how to prevent that from happening. And they have three clear choices in terms of behavior to prevent being eaten alive. That's the metaphor of that movie that is so dangerous and it's so violent, but it's so real, but it's underneath everything. Nobody wants to face that. It's just a goofy movie about a fish. But if you take a look at real life, that's the metaphor. People are always looking for real information about how to avoid being eaten alive. And and that, I think, is really why Jaws is still as popular as it is. Thank you so much for being on Guatney Unplugged and doing the show. All right, great. Well, if you have any other questions, you know how to get in touch with me. Hey, thank you so <laughs> much, Marty. Hey, we'll see you guys next week on Guatney Unplugged.